everybody. On behalf of the Asian American Bar Association of New York, welcome to the Whole Lawyer Project, which highlights Asian American attorneys and leaders throughout the nation and the human stories behind their success. I am your host, Jane Jong, and today we have Stephanie Tao, a former big law associate and a founder of Asian Pacific Islander International Connectors, a nonprofit serving to stop Asian hate and to connect community leaders, NGOs, and grassroots organizations. You can check them out on Instagram at APIIC underscore org for support and more information. Stephanie, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Hi, Jane. Nice to meet you. Thank you for nice having me. Nice to meet me. you as well. Of course. Let's dive right in. Let's tell me about your work with APIIC. I understand you recently founded this organization. Yes, I actually got started at towards the end of last year when mm-hmm. I had been working with some Chinatown community leaders on creating an ox statue that was featured at San Francisco Airport that raised funds for the Chinatown Children's Community Center. And from there, I started making those connections. With the recent rise in anti-Asian violence and attacks, we wanted to be able to do more for the community. And in Chinatown, a lot of times they have a great community there, but sometimes the resources are limited. We wanted to do work that would have an impact and add some sort of value that other people aren't already doing. And so what we realized is that there is an opportunity there where there's lots of different rallies, lots of different fundraisers and great programs going on, but they're not always being at their most impactful because they, they're working in their sole capacity. So as an example, we connected a group that was fundraising and putting together whistles with the Chinatown community leaders. We found out that the group that was making the whistles didn't know how to most effectively distribute them to the elderly. Mm. And then the Chinatown community leaders, uh, of course, wanted to have increased protection for their people, but uh, Mm -hmm. didn't have the funds to do that. So we connected the groups together and made the introductions and was able to successfully get thousands of whistles over to the Chinatown community elderly. That's great. How did you get involved with social justice efforts in the first place? The amount of work you guys are doing in the last couple of months has been really impressive. Did you have a activism background or did you partner with the right people? How did you first get this all started? So I've actually been working in social justice for a really long time. I Mm -hmm. got started back in college, so it's been about 15 years now. And one of the original rallies that we worked on was taking the Kung Fu costume off of the retail shelves. I don't know if anyone in the audience remembers it, but it was basically a Halloween costume that was an, mm. with a caricature of an Asian person that was beat up with black and blue eyes and buck teeth and slanty eyes and in a karate costume. And yeah, yeah it was really bad. And then, and then another um, one that we'd worked on during that same time period was when Abercrombie and Fitch had come out with a t-shirt that had laundry pictures on it. And the caption on the shirt was two Wongs make it white. So those were rallies that I helped out with early on. And we were able to successfully get them pulled off the shelf. And the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and all the microaggressions we face 
in our lifetimes, it's very easy to see the injustice, but not really know what you can do about it. For people who are interested in activism work and getting more involved in fighting for our community, what is the first step for them? What do you advise that they do? I think that it could be a broad range of things. If somebody wanted to really be actively involved, there's a lot of organizations out there that definitely need more volunteers. There's a lot of different ways you could help out with rallies or organizing or creating art, graphic art, especially nowadays with social media, having those powerful visual images matter. Really any sort of skill or interest that you have, there's something out there for you. Even if somebody doesn't feel like they have time to do a full volunteer position or to go out to rallies or they don't feel like it's safe right now. That's totally okay. And there's a lot of small things that if everybody did would be really helpful. As an example, just doing bystander intervention if you see something not right. So if it's as simple as seeing if somebody is is being mistreated or bullied or ignored, then you can step in and say, hey, this person was next in line, right? Like just standing up and saying something makes a big deal. Or if you feel like somebody is in an uncomfortable situation and you're not sure, you can give them an out by just walking up and just chatting with the person that you think is the perpetrator and by saying, hey, I love your hat. Like, where'd you get that jacket, man? Anything that can distract the perpetrator so that the the, the victim can you know leave, that's super helpful. That's very creative. I, I really like what you just said there because for a lot of us, you see it and you're not even sure what to do. And I love the idea of just distracting somebody and not even necessarily confronting the issue, but just to de-escalate the situation in a way that could allow somebody to just remove themselves from the situation as you engage somebody in a random conversation. I think that's incredibly smart. Little actions here and there, even if you don't feel like it makes a big difference, if we all do it, it definitely makes a difference. And even just the one person, like in that kind of situation, let's say somebody's being cornered on a train or something or harassed, like just the one person going up and chatting up the guy so that the the other person can escape, that is super helpful. And you've just made a huge difference in someone's life. You don't know what that could have been. Or mm-hmm. if there's a violence situation going on and you don't want to go out there and physically confront the person because you're worried about your own safety, just distracting them by being like, oh my God, what's happening over there? Or, oh, the police are here. <laughs> like just anything that, that will make someone go, what? <laughs> and then that moment of what? might be just the difference that the victim needs to be able to either punch back or run away or whatever they need to do. Like just the split second is what we need. Yeah, yeah, I love that. On a more timely note though, so there's a rally coming up in about a week right now on May 15th, 2021, that you guys are organizing with international organizations across the US and Australia and Canada. Tell us more about that and, and how we can get involved. Sure. Hate crimes are happening not just in the U.S., but all over the world, particularly in Western countries. So since we had this universal issue and there were so many small rallies that aren't really getting media attention and a lot of people outside the Asian communities weren't seeing the issues. They'll see the big ones that happen, like the Georgia attacks, but they won't see the day-to-day issues. And so I, I noticed that a lot of people outside the Asian community, they didn't really see Asian attacks and violence being an issue. And so that's the thought behind getting an international rally together so that people can start understanding that, hey, there is a major issue going on here and it's not just one-off attacks 
that are happening. It's an everyday issue now. It's very easy to lose interest and, and get desensitized. It almost seems like you have to remind people that this is still going on and that this is something that they should care about. Yeah, it's really like movie level crazy. It feels like we're in like Gotham City or something. That's in a certain sense, it's like more like a video game or a movie than, than it is real life. But what I've been working on doing on our social media, as an example, is showing people not just the purely the camera violence, because then I think if you just show that and with nothing else, it, people do become desensitized over time. But showing them the faces of the people, the family that it's impacting, letting them know that, for instance, the one of the, the grandmas that was recently stabbed in San Francisco is an old family friend of one of our friends, hmm. showing them that these are real people. This is a real connection. For those who want to get more information, where can they go? They can mm-hmm. go to www.communityagainsthate.org. And that is the website where all the different organizations um, that have been working on this have been pulling together there. And right now, the website still lists as U.S. only, but it is in the process of being updated to include Australia and Canada. Yeah, so the hardest thing about grassroots is really getting organized and making sure that everyone's doing what they're doing, but also trying to even figure out what exactly there is to do. How do you even get in contact with these organizations? What have you learned from your activism work? So in terms of outreach and organizing, what's really interesting was how great and friendly everyone has been. So nobody should be afraid to reach out. And the way that I've been actually doing the initial outreach is pretty much your old-fashioned cold calling. For instance, I decided, okay, I'm going to focus on getting an Australian organization right now. And so then I would actually just go and Google and look for articles about Asian protest rallies and then look to find a name to contact in the article. And then from there, I would, you know, check Facebook or LinkedIn and a variety of other resources to try to find their contact information or their YouTube page or whatever they have. So just any way that I could message them and get through. And then to the extent that I had warm connections, obviously that's the best. They're being halfway across the world. I didn't have warm connections all the time. So just by reaching out and connecting with them and and introducing myself and what I want to do and the mission of our organization, I've been able to go a very long way. I went through several layers of introductions in order to get to the people that were able to actually sync with our rally on May 15th. You launched API International Connectors at a time when you're taking a pause from your big law career. Can you explain your career before you launched API and what led you to take this current pause you're on now? Sure. So I was in big law for about 10 years and I worked in corporate for the first four years doing your startup venture capital IPO M&A type of securities filing type work. And then I spent the next six years, almost seven years working on technology transactions, marketing and advertising, privacy and technology law. And it's been a really exciting ride. Of course, I've worked with all the major Silicon Valley startups and watching them grow from a tiny little startup to becoming a huge unicorn. And it's as anyone who's ever worked in big law knows, it's as exhilarating 
working as it is exhausting. <laughs> During the pandemic, it made it really difficult, especially early on, because I have a toddler and a baby. And you know, we could theoretically have gotten childcare, but especially before when there weren't any vaccines, we were concerned that would lead to exposure for both the kids and my parents who are helping out with the kids, because you just never know what kind of contact and quarantine the childcare provider has. Of course. Um, so that made it difficult. And I tried struggling really hard to work and get everything done, but it's just really hard to be on Zoom meetings and at a drop of a hat as you need to if you don't happen to have a child care provider at that very moment. And then also just getting large amounts of work done in, in a very short timeline because like I tried waking up at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. to get the work done when everybody else was sleeping, mm -hmm. but sometimes I'll get up and work it but then 10 minutes later the baby will start crying <laughs> oh my gosh so, so you, you decided to take a pause yeah. and was it difficult for you to make that decision it, it was extremely difficult because I've always been one of those people that was like I am a career woman and I am going to be partnered by 30 I'm sure a lot of listeners understand that person I'm sure yes <laughs> I'm sure yes and so it was it was a really difficult decision for me to have to step back or consider stepping back. But ultimately, mm. there was one day that my three-year-old was just broke down sobbing. And I said, what's wrong? What's going on? And she's like, I'm all alone. Nobody wants to talk to me. No one wants to play with me. Yeah. And yeah, so just because we couldn't take her out to go play with her friends or anything. It was just really mm -hmm. hard. And she's too little to understand what a pandemic is or anything else. Yeah. So that must um, have been heartbreaking. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> definitely felt like a very bad person. So just between that and, and my personal health as well, you can imagine it's, it's difficult trying to wake up at like you, you, 2, 4 a.m. trying to get work done and then maybe maybe getting it done, maybe not getting it done. And just a combination of everything just made it, it just didn't make sense to continue at that moment. But I think that it's also been a great opportunity because I figured that, hey, since I am having stuff off, but I am still used to working lots of hours and working very hard and getting things done. What if I put that energy towards doing something that I want to do? And so I started working on projects like the API International Connectors to try to do something to help make a difference. Just doing the work to be willing to put yourself out there, it, it makes a surprising huge difference. It sounds like you had like two very extremes, like that one big law partner track mentality, and now you're taking a pause from that. I can't imagine what you went through in the early days when you're trying to balance it all. What advice do you have for, let's say, law students or young attorneys just starting out their careers? I tell law students to keep their priorities straight. If you haven't seen the Disney movie called Soul, I would highly recommend watching I that. love that movie. So I, I won't spoil it too much, but the moment where one of the characters gets what they're looking for and then their reaction to it is very real and it's something that I've never seen talked about in any book or movie or anything before. And I think it's very poignant and important because I think a lot of people that go to law school, especially the people who go to big law, are always trying to get that A, are always trying to make partner, do whatever to get that next A uh, to ring the bell. And then they forget and life passes them by. 
And there's just mm. so much risk of life than that. One of the partners that I spoke with before said that he doesn't have any memories of his 30s. And yeah, yeah and, and that really made an impact on me when he said that, because was that to lose a decade of your life with no memories at all? And life goes by very quickly. You just never know when things are going to change. And so the importance of valuing your family, your loved ones, like the people that matter and spending time and making memories with them. That is what's important. And I think it gets forgotten a lot, especially when you're on a big deadline or a big deal and you're just turning and the hours just run by. And then all of a sudden it's been a month, it's been a year and you've completely, the time moves very quickly. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. What you say resonates a lot. Life is not about these shiny gold medals they're really nice and they punctuate our lives, but the life is about the stuff in between the everyday, as you're saying. How did you gain that perspective and how do you keep yourself from losing that perspective on a day-to-day? Oddly enough, the pivotal moment for me happened in law school, actually. Mm. I've always worked crazy hard in the sense of studying. I, I'm smart, but I'm not like one of those people that just can automatically just memorize things <laughs> and then suddenly get mm-hmm. an A. So I have to work really hard to get that A. I missed out on a lot of parties and fun things to do with friends because I had to study to get that A. So then in law school, I finally got that summer associateship and offer and everything. And I'm like, yeah, I made it. And then I had that, now what? And so then I was like, where do I go from here? I I actually had pre-planned out my life until I was like 30 or something. And then I realized like, what do I do after 30? I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. I think we're all taught for some reason, like life ends at 30 or something. We're like, that's the peak. And then you hit 30 and you're like, oh. (laughs) So I realized that I had my priorities all wrong and I read a lot of books on about what makes people happy how how do you define joy what kind of lessons that older folks would impart and there's a very famous article now about a woman who worked in hospices and worked with people that were constantly dying and and there was and she said that there was a common refrain against all of them, which was that not a single one of them wished they'd worked more. They all wished that mm-hmm. they had worked less and spent more time with their friends and family and making memories. And I think the hard part is balancing that and work and at the same time doing something that you're really interested in and also having it be fulfilling and also paying the bills making yourself feel happy that you've reached whatever goal that you've made it's it's a lot it it is really hard to to do that balance but yeah and then another thing that made a big difference to me was also that I was trying to balance work and raising my first baby and I noticed that even though I was there with her because I was working remotely part-time even before the pandemic. It was difficult because I felt like overnight somebody, if you can picture like a Pixar cartoon <laughs> where there's a baby in the crib and then the mom goes to sleep and then oh, somebody gosh. just stole my baby out and replaced her, <laughs> you know, a toddler, right? That's what it felt like. You felt like you were not very present throughout that time that passed? Yeah, it's like the picture that you see of the kids playing in the park or something, and then the parents are on the phone, right? Like, if you're not mm. engaged, you're not there. You're not making memories, mm-hmm. even if you're physically next to each other. Mm-hmm. And memories are what make up our life, because as you move forward, you're going to look back, and if you can't remember anything, or if all you remember is work stuff, then 
that's all you have right. <laughs> of the past. Right. So Stephanie, what's next for you? You have two very young, active kids at home. You're very much involved with social activism for the Asian American community. What would you dream of your life to unfold in the next 10 years? So I'm actually exploring right now. I started working on a bakery because it was something different from and a mm. totally new skill that I had no background in. One of the things that I worked on with the bakery as an example was mahjong tiles that look very realistic because mahjong is a very popular game that has been universally spread around the world and is, is very popular in um, America now as well. The tiles look very realistic and the back is matcha and the front is uh, white chocolate flavor. So it's very tasty. I worked with hundreds of ingredients and suppliers to get the taste just right. I had it test tasted with over 50 people in different cities and ran like a whole user experience survey with like quantitative and got their feedback and, and made basically like my kind of masterpiece. So to speak. You're quite the, the jack of all trades these days. It's very exciting to be able to, to be able For to sure. use like every single one of your skill to its utmost ability. And the legal stuff even comes in with it too, because I got to use my corporate skills to incorporate the company and deal with the, the tax filings and all the business filings. And then I actually had to work through like different environmental departments and get the, the, the government regulators to to agree with each other. I can't believe this is a side hustle, but if you want to get more information, where can people find you? Oh, you can, if you go to vivianlivy.com, it's uh, V-I-A-N-D-L-I-V-Y, vivianlivy.com. We'll have to do a follow-up episode once you guys open and launch officially. I'm excited to hear where this goes. Yeah, all of my prior experience doing corporate and product law and working with the contracts with manufacturers and distributors and everything, it's all coming into play. So everything that I've learned in the last 10 years, I've been able to put in practice for myself. So that's been very exciting. Yeah, Stephanie, this is so great. Thank you so much for your time. I love that you're at this this interesting juncture in your life where you're just leading with what interests you and what makes you happy. Thank you so much for all the advice and for putting all the word out there on the May 15th rally. We'll be sure to post that and make sure that we can support you as best we can. Great. Thank you very much for having me.